Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different than our traditional podcast. We're going to do a lecture that I've given many times in the past to my residents and in other places on how to give a great presentation. Now, the impetus behind this is that this talk used to exist on another platform. That platform has since closed, and now this doesn't exist out there. And I often use it as flipped classroom work for groups that I'm working on presentation design. So this is a little bit selfish, but I'm hoping that everybody out there can get something out of this as well. Now, there are a number of great resources on how to build presentations. We'll mention some of those during the podcast, but I don't have any financial interest in any of these things. This is just one of my passions that I'm hoping I can make you guys as passionate about. Why is it important to give a great presentation? We've got blogs, we've got podcasts, we've got so many different ways to learn now. Back when I was in residency, which wasn't that long ago, we had a very traditional approach to education. It was four one-hour lectures. And I will tell you that I don't think it was very good. I don't think it held anybody's interest. It didn't really follow along with some of the things that we know about how to get people to pay attention to different topics, how to get people to pay attention to live lectures. I wasn't really getting my core content out of it. I was really getting most of my knowledge from reading textbooks, but I wanted more than that. And as I've explored this topic more and more, you see that there are better ways to give lectures. There are better ways to give talks. But the lecture itself has taken a lot of hits in recent years, and people have talked about the lecture being dead, that the lecture is going away, but I don't think it's really true. Lectures are ubiquitous. They've been around for generations and generations, hundreds and hundreds of years, as a way to communicate information. And despite that eulogy that I think some people give to presentations and live lectures, they're alive and kicking. Any conference you go to is going to be filled with talks. So the lecture isn't dead, but we need to resuscitate it. We need to bring it back. We need to build better talks so our audience pays attention. Many of the things that we do, many of the things that we see lecturers do are built on, again, generations and generations of experience, but not necessarily understanding the best that we know about how people learn. I think that the way that talks are traditionally built focuses on the wrong pieces, and so we need to do a better job. We can sum all of this up simply by saying that traditional lecture building doesn't work. We need to accept that fact. The way that we have been taught to build lectures, the way that we see lectures given, the way that we see lectures built is not the right way to do it. Everything that we know about building lectures is wrong. And once we accept that, we can start to move on. One of the core principles that I think about when I build a presentation or when I teach others about building presentations is something that Marshall McLuhan said. Marshall McLuhan was a philosopher, and he said anyone who tries to make a distinction between education and entertainment doesn't know the first thing about either. It's a fairly profound statement because when we look at medical education, we have to be thinking about how are we entertaining the audience? And I'm not talking about song and dance, but I'm talking about engaging them, keeping the audience engaged in your topic, understanding that when you give a lecture, it shouldn't be about the educator. It shouldn't be about you. It should be about the learner. So changing the focus and understanding the limitations of lecture learning. So understanding that piece of things, let's go back even further and think about how lectures have come over time. A lecture, in essence, is an argument. And if we go back really far to Aristotle's time, he talked about how you build an argument. And I think this applies directly to how we build a presentation, how we build a lecture. He said there had to be three parts of any good argument, ethos, 
pathos, and logos. Ethos meaning about the presenter, how we convince the audience that we are experts and we should be listened to. Pathos, appeal to the emotions of the audience. And then logos, the argument about the logic of the topic. I find that often people focus on that last part, the logos, and maybe they bring in some of the ethos as well, but we often skip over the pathos, understanding the audience, understanding the emotions they have about the topic and how appealing to those emotions can make your arguments stronger. My friend Ross Fisher, who runs a fantastic site, PQ Presentations, he talks about every presentation having three pieces, thus PQ. A good presentation starts with a story. What's the story behind the topic you're talking about? It also involves your supportive media. And then finally, the deliverance or the performance of that presentation. These three pieces have to come together to make a great presentation, a memorable presentation. And I think when we talk about a great presentation, we have to define what that means. And that's going to be different in different situations. But in general, I think about a great presentation being something that is lasting, that impacts the audience, that teaches them something they didn't know or inspires them about the topic. This is what we should be looking for. One of the core principles that Ross talks about and others have talked about in the past is that a presentation is not a data dump. It is not, I know all of this information about this topic and I'm going to download it directly into your brain. This isn't like the matrix. We can't plug into the computer and get all of this information from the mainframe. And so instead, it has to be about inspiring people about the topic, giving them some information, but also inspiring them to learn more about the topic. There's all of our background, and let's now get into some of the nitty-gritty of how I go about creating a presentation. And I'll tell you that this is going to vary. People are going to do this differently. There are people out there that are far more expert than I am in doing this, but I'm going to give you my steps. There are eight simple steps in creation of a presentation, and you'll have to take this and modify it for your own use, but there are some good things in here that I think everyone can use and everyone should start using in order to build better talks, better presentations, so that when we go to conferences, we get better content, we get better education. And again, a lot of this is going to be changing the focus from the educator to the learner. And that's one of the key steps we have to be looking at. Let's start getting into my eight-step process, and we'll start with step number one, one of the easiest steps, which is to become inspired by the great speakers, the people who are really talented at what they do and show us how to do it well. When I started my speaking career about 10 years ago, I tried to emulate these great speakers because these were the people I could learn from. And over time, that emulation or almost imitation of their style morphed into my own style. And I think that's okay to start with because you are honing in, you're recognizing things in these great presenters that make their lectures great, that make their presentations great, that engage the learner. And there are lots of people out there, the couple that I often turn to now as people who inspire me to do a better job with my speaking are people like Vic Brazel, Scott Weingart, and Ross Fisher, who I mentioned earlier. These are people who I think are at the top of their game, who put a lot of time and thought into how they present, and watching them speak or listening to them speak is very moving and inspiring, and it helps me to think about how I can do a better job with what I have in front of me. These are all people in medicine, but it doesn't have to be people in medicine that you draw inspiration from. We have incredible access to great speakers on platforms like TED Talks, or you could go back in time and 
pull recordings of people from history, people like Winston Churchill, and hear their speeches because their speeches were so well put together. They were so thoughtful in what they wanted to accomplish. But going back and looking at these people and and watching TED Talks and watching your mentors or people in EM that you look up to, seeing what they do can really be a great inspiration as you start to go down your pathway in becoming a speaker as well. That brings us to step number two, and that is about creating a narrative and focusing on what part of the topic you're passionate about. As Steve Jobs said that the only way to do great work is to love what you do. That may be easy for somebody who's a billionaire and used to run Apple, but for us, it may be a little more difficult. We're often told what the topic of the talk is that we're going to be giving instead of picking it ourselves. But I think we can find within those topics what our story is, what we want to use as inspiration, what we want to tell the audience about, what we think the audience needs. I often joke that Amal Matu, one of the people that I look up to for his speaking abilities, could give a three-hour symposium on prostate-specific antigens, and I'd be there. I would go because he would do a brilliant job. He would find something within that topic that he was passionate about and communicate that passion to us. So when we take that topic, when it's given to us, when we pick a topic, whatever it is, find something within that that speaks to you. That's your story about that topic, because that's how we communicate passion. If we are passionate about the topic, our learners will be as well. And then we're going to locate within that topic, within that passion, what the learners actually want, what they need and how to communicate it to them. So we're going to look for that story, look for what makes us passionate. And that's step two. And this step is pretty difficult. It sounds simple, but it can be tough. And it takes a lot of time to figure out what is it that I want to talk about? What inspires me about this topic? That moves us to step number three. So we've got a topic that's been given to us or we've picked. We've found something within that that is truly inspirational to us and that we also think is important to the learner. But now we need to start shaping this. We need to start shaping the story, shaping the message, and figuring out what that learner actually wants. And this moves us into the brainstorming phase of our talk. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is when they are doing their brainstorming, when they are trying to figure out what they want to talk about, how they want to talk about it. The first thing people do is open their laptop and open up PowerPoint or Keynote or whatever software they are using to build a slide set. And this is a huge mistake because The digital media, while it is extremely helpful to us, while it's extremely beneficial, it is not a creative space for our brains. Our brains are less creative with the constraints of something like PowerPoint or Keynote. We need to allow our minds to be free and explore the topic. And there are lots of ways to do this, and this is really going to be very individually dependent. How do you free your mind? How do you get your mind to explore the topic? For me, that creative space is when I go running. I love to run out there almost every day. I don't have music, but I let my mind wander and explore. And this is particularly great when I have a new talk that I want to give. I have a topic. I've started to construct my story. I go for a long run and I just let my brain explore that topic and think about what do I want to talk about? What is different about this topic that I want to communicate? What do my learners want? And that freedom to let our minds wander allows us to be creative as opposed to the constraints that we see with software, with slide design software, with the digital media. Now, it doesn't have to be running. If that's not the thing that works for you, you have to find where your creative space is. But I would implore you not to use your computer. If you want to sit and write, then write. 
Use a notepad or scrap paper or index cards, but something that allows you to explore the topic a little bit more. Some of the ways that people do this are with things like mind maps, where you have a topic in the middle and you just start laying out ideas around that topic. One of the great things about a mind map is that it allows for the creativity of the brain. For instance, if you were giving a talk on aortic dissection, and one of the things that you know you want to talk about is treatment. You want to talk about what agents, what medical agents to give to help with that dissection. That's a great topic, but it might not be where your talk would start. And so in the limited linear fashion of digital media, of things like PowerPoint, it might be difficult for you to lay that down when it pops into your head. But with a mind map, you can just throw all that information down there and say, I know this isn't going to be the first thing I talk about, but I don't want to lose that idea. I want to keep it there. So now I've written it down. It's there, but I can start moving these things around and then forming the pattern, the outline of how this is all going to flow. Mind maps are one way. I actually like to use post-it notes for this. So as I start writing out ideas and coming up with things, I put them on individual post-it notes and I put them up on my wall or on a dry erase board. And what that allows me to do is each post-it note has one single idea. And now I can start grouping those post-it notes. So again, if we're talking about aortic dissection, I want to talk about the history. I want to talk about imaging. And then I want to talk about the medication and the treatment of this disorder. I can write the ideas down on individual post-it notes and then group those post-it notes into the groups they belong in. And so now you can start to see some kind of a structure form, but we've come to that structure out of a structureless place, allowing our mind to explore the ideas, write down whatever pops in, and then organize them later. And what a lot of this does is avoid writer's block. Writer's block is just as prevalent in creating a presentation as it is in writing a paper or writing an essay. It's easy for us to get stuck on a topic, but doing this kind of creative process allows us to avoid some of that writer's block and move forward. So at this point, we've gone through steps one, two, and three. Much of this is about creating that story, what Ross calls the P1, the story behind your presentation. We're going to be inspired by great speakers. We're going to think about what about this topic inspires us. What, if it inspires me, will also inspire the learners. And then using our time to brainstorm, to allow our minds to be freed and explore the topic. Think about what it is that we actually want to talk about while writing some of those things down in a relatively unorganized fashion. At this point, we need to move to step four, which is crafting our message. We have some of this already in the story, but now we need to be a little bit more mindful of how we're putting that message together. What are the critical things that we want our learners to take away? What are the critical things that we think our learners need to take away, to go back to work, to institute this into their lives or into their practice? If you've done all the work with the mind mapping or with post-it notes, these messages are going to start to form in front of your face. You're going to be looking and staring at that and saying, you know, this is starting to coalesce into three or four key messages that I'm going to want to communicate to my audience. And that's really where the focus needs to be is really just in three to four take home points, regardless of the length of time that you have to teach. There's only so much that people are going to walk out with. And so you want to hone those down and say, if you only learn a couple of things from my talk, here are the three to four things you're going to learn. Now, there is some variation based on length of talk. If you're given a five-minute talk, well, you're probably not going to be able to communicate three to four take-home points. You're probably only going to be able to communicate one or maybe two. An hour-long talk, 
you're still only going to get three to four take-home points, three to four things that everyone should be walking out the door with. This is very similar to the concept of the elevator pitch. Let's say that I am at a conference, I'm going to give a talk, and I run into a friend, someone that I know from residency or from medical school, and they say, oh, I saw that you're giving a lecture. I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm meeting somebody for a drink or I'm going to another talk. What are you going to be talking about? That's an opportunity to teach somebody outside that lecture hall, to give them those three to four take-home points, to give them the key messages that you want everyone to get. So we should be able to hone this down and say, okay, I have a 30-minute presentation, but I can hone it down to 30 seconds. In 30 seconds, I'm going to tell you everything you have to know. I'm not going to be able to give you all the details behind everything I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to give you the core messages. And if we can do that, if we can create that elevator pitch, that helps us with the entire talk as we create it. Because now every time that we create a slide, every time we create another point, every time we add data, we can come back and say, does this apply to my message? Does this come back to the key messages that I want people to get when they walk out the door? And again, we're recognizing that no matter how long I'm up there for, no matter how long we're talking, the audience can only take away a couple of discrete points. So we have to be careful about what it is that we think is critically important for people to take home. So now we've gotten through steps one through four, moving on to step five. And step five is building a skeleton presentation. It's taking all of that information that's on post-it notes, in a mind map, in however you've brainstormed, all of those take-home points, and now starting to create a flow, an order to all of these things, how you're going to tell that story. And this can be done in many different ways. You can take all that information and keep to the non-digital format, keep to the analog format of writing down your presentation in order. Some people really like doing something called storyboarding, where they take all that information and they almost make little pictures or drawings of as they go of how their talk is going to progress. And that's fine if you do that. I'm not a very good drawer. I've never been much of a storyboarder, but it is one way to approach how you're going to tell this story. What I usually do is I take all that information that I have and I start writing down an outline, a physical outline on pen and paper, or maybe at this point I'm opening my computer and writing it into some kind of a Word or Pages document and starting to really organize my thoughts and how this story is going to flow, how this presentation is going to move from the beginning through all of my take-home points until the end. At some point with this process, whether you are doing it on pen and paper, whether you are doing it with storyboard, you're going to start thinking about your supportive media that you're going to be using and using your computer to take that outline and create slides out of it. So this step is kind of step 5B, or maybe it's five and a half, and I'm not really sure, but this is where you're really going to need to use your computer if you've decided that you're going to use digital supportive media. Now, for me, I like using Keynote, but PowerPoint's fine. I don't really have a problem with one or the other. And what I would do at this point is take that outline that I've created, that flow of how the talk is going to go, and start creating slides, with each slide representing a single topic, almost like a single pane of a storyboard. And what I do is take the information from the outline and I put it in the presenter notes. So what I have at the end of this process is a slide deck filled with 20, 30, maybe 40 empty slides, just blank canvas. But in the presenter notes are the details of what that slide is going to be about. Maybe what image I'll eventually be looking for or what data I'm going to try to communicate at that time. And at the end of this process, again, I've got a full slide deck but it's completely empty and it's pretty meaningless to anyone from the outside. Let's take a pause here at step five and reflect a little bit on this process and how it is different than most of the ways that we have created talks in the past. We are 
approaching step six most of the way through this process, and only now have we first opened our computer. If I go back to the first talk I ever gave, the first thing I did when I sat down to give a presentation was open my computer, open PowerPoint, and start building slides. Now we have really spent a lot of time building the story, building that P1, thinking about what it is that we want to communicate, thinking about our learners and what they need, reflecting on all of these ideas instead of just focusing on what the slides are going to look like. But now we are moving to that supportive media phase. Supportive media isn't always necessary, and we have to ask that question of whether we actually do need supportive media for our talk or not. Most will have some form of supportive media, but just remember it is not mandatory. So at this point in your talk, we're approaching step number six. We've got a full set of slides that are empty, that have information in the presenter notes, but nothing in the actual slide itself. Step six is going to be filling those slides up. This is going to be the creation of your supportive media. And we have to be careful with how we do this. We have to understand that reading from a PowerPoint isn't the same as teaching. That's a critical concept here because most of the talks that we have gone to through college, through residency, through medical school, it was slides with a lot of bullet points on them that the presenter would simply read from. There are a number of problems with this process. And one of the great books that everybody doing presentations should read is Presentation Zen by Gar Reynolds. It is one of the holy Bibles of supportive media creation and gives lots of these different concepts and really expounds into this area much more than I can do on this podcast. So definitely check that book out. But there are many problems with this idea of just bullet point after bullet point after bullet point. Most of these problems you already know because you have sat through those lectures and walked out after an hour and said, I don't even know what I was there for. I didn't learn anything from that talk. We need to get around that problem. What happens is that people use their slides. They use their supportive media as a crutch. They've decided to do a data dump onto the audience, take all of the information about this topic, throw it up on slides, and then throw those slides up for people to look at and for them to read from. But Teaching is different than reading from PowerPoint. Our brains cannot both process audio and visual input at the same time. We simply can't do it. And our brains will prefer to read as opposed to listening. So if you put a slide up with lots of information on it, lots of things to read, and you talk about the same thing at the same time, I won't listen to you. I'll read what's in front of me. It is very difficult for our brains to listen when there is a visual stimulus for us to look at and read. And so we have to stop doing that process. We have to stop putting all of these words there and then simply reading them. Instead, what we're going to do is create slides that are full of images. These images prompt the brain of the learner to think about the topic you're going to be talking about. And they prompt the educator, they prompt the speaker to remember what it is that they wanted to talk about. But the information doesn't lie on the slide. The information is with the presenter. We can't both read and listen at the same time. So instead of that, we'll put an image up, no words, and we'll simply talk so that people will listen to what it is that we want to communicate. Now, again, this is a huge topic. There are lots of different facets of this, including how we should communicate data, how we should communicate tables, how we should communicate graphs. The short answer to this is that you shouldn't put a table full of numbers. You shouldn't put bar graphs or pie charts full of information on your slides because people will look at those slides and they will read them instead of listening to what it is that you're going to say. One of my biggest pet peeves is when a presenter apologizes for a busy slide. That really means that you recognize that slide wasn't good, that there was too much information on it, but you left it up there anyway. 
We have to avoid doing that. If you understand that this isn't a good slide, get rid of it. Figure out a better way to communicate the information. And again, if you look at Gar Reynolds' book, Presentation Zen, if you go over to Ross's site, PQ Presentations, there's lots of tips on how to create better slides. It's almost a talk in and of itself that maybe Salim and I will explore at another time of how to do that better. At this point, we are through our first six steps. We are through the story and the supportive media pieces of the P3 plan. And I'll tell you that this is where most people will say their presentation is complete. It is finished and they are ready now to deliver it. But we're still two steps short of completion of this talk. Two critical steps. It is the P3 in the PQ presentations that we haven't quite addressed. And that's the performance. Because just like Marshall McLuhan said, it's not just about education, it's about entertainment. And that means that we have to perform when we are giving a talk. We can't simply rely on, I know the information, I've got a story, I've got supportive media, let's go do it. We actually have to rehearse and practice. There's not a single high-tuned athlete, there's not a single musician or a dancer that would go and do a performance without first practicing and rehearsing. While I've talked about Marshall McLuhan and Steve Jobs, my favorite philosopher of the 20th century is Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee famously said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And we need to take that to heart. We need to practice this. We need to practice the presentation over and over again until we are secure with the information. The practicing process is what allows us to take the information off the slides, take the words and the bullet points, because we know the topic now. We have rehearsed, we have practiced, we have mastered this talk that we are now going to deliver to an audience. Within that, we want to focus on the intro and close. This is where we have the most attention of the group in front of us. So we want to start with a strong introduction and we want to make sure to close strong. Some people talk about almost memorizing your intro and close so that it is mastered, it is delivered repeatedly the same way. I don't think it has to be completely memorized, but it has to be practiced more than the rest, knowing that these are the pieces of your presentation that people will remember, that they will hone in on. And everything within the intro, the body, the close, all of it is going to come back to your focus, the three to four take-home points that you established as the most important parts of what everyone is going to leave with. And as you practice, you make sure, does this information relate to my three to four take-home points? Because if it doesn't, it probably doesn't belong in the talk. So now we can start to hone this down. We can start to refine what it is that we are talking about. How much should we be practicing our talk? How much rehearsal is necessary to deliver a great talk? I don't have a good answer for that. It really is going to depend on how long it takes for you to become comfortable with the information to really master that talk. But in general, I would say that I run a talk anywhere between eight and 15 times before I deliver it to a live audience for the first time. And early on, I'm going to be giving that from front to finish so that I can start to get the information in my brain. But as I progress, I may do just the intro and close and leave out the middle part and start to really focus on those pieces. I might chunk that presentation into smaller pieces to make it a little bit easier for me to get through. But a lot of time is going to be spent on this process of rehearsing, practicing, and honing the information so that when you deliver it in front of an audience, you know it. You're not relying on text on your slides. You're not relying on your supportive media. You're not relying on your notes. The information exists in your head, and now you can deliver it. And of course, this allows for the safety feature of if something goes wrong with your slide deck, I can still give that presentation. 
If there's a full tech shortage or a tech outage, I can still do this talk because I know the information well. And again, while we are rehearsing, we are taking note of places where maybe we're not as comfortable. Maybe we need to work more on this segment, or maybe we need to flesh out the topic a little bit more to make it easier to communicate to the audience that we're discussing this with. Now that's step seven, rehearsal and practice. And now step eight. And this is the one that even masters, even people who are really good at presentations rarely do. And that is seeking and getting feedback. It's a very difficult process, but critically important. The only way to know whether you've done a good job is to seek feedback. Now, there's feedback that you can seek while you're developing your talk, and there's also feedback that you can get after you've given it. So let's start with the former. How do we get feedback while we're building the talk? When I build a new talk, I'm often bouncing ideas off of friends, off of other people who present on a regular basis and asking them what they think about the topic. I've aligned myself with a couple of what I call buddies, almost like a buddy system. When I'm creating a new talk, I talk to them about it. I bounce ideas off them. What do you think about this? Is this something that people want to know about? And then while I am practicing, I'll record myself. This is very painful for people to do, not the recording process, but the listening to yourself speak. But it's really important because you'll find out where you're stumbling, when you have too many ums and likes, how you can do a better job of delivery. So I record myself and I will actually send that recording to people I know and ask them, hey, can you take a listen and tell me what you think? Give me some critique. Give me some feedback. Tell me how I've done and what I could do better. And that is a moment of really making ourselves vulnerable, but it will make us better presenters. So these are things that we can do before we deliver the talk to make ourselves better at when we deliver the talk. How about feedback from the talk itself? Again, when I'm giving a new talk for the first time, I will record myself as I deliver that talk to the audience. What this allows me to do later is to listen to it and find out how comfortable was I actually with that talk. Again, where did I stumble and where could I do a better job in the future? Painful process of listening to yourself, but really necessary. I often will also ask somebody who's in the audience that I know, that I trust, to give me specific feedback about a specific area of the talk. Now, it can be about the content, but often it is about the delivery, the performance, the how I've held my stage presence. And again, this is going to depend on what it is that you need at that time. But identifying a couple of friends in the audience to give you specific feedback can be really helpful. But getting feedback from the general audience is great as well. And the way that I do that, because I don't think most of the evaluation forms that are given out at conferences are really good or useful, is I just carry a stack of index cards in my bag. And when I give a talk, I hand those index cards out before the talk is given. I give my talk. And at the end, after I've answered questions and I'm done, I ask everybody, can you just write down on that index card three things that you learned from my talk today? And then just leave them in the back and I'll pick them up. And at some point in the next 24 hours, I will go through all those cards. And what I'm looking for is harmony between what I wanted to teach, what my focus was, and what the cards say. Did I actually accomplish what I wanted to? Did I actually teach the learner the things that I thought were important going into this? And what I found in the past is that often they do align. There is harmony between that, and that makes me feel good that I've done my job. But often there isn't. Sometimes people will come up with different take-home points. They'll get different messages. So I have to look at that and say, well, is this because I didn't deliver the information I wanted to, or was there something else in that talk that was critically important that I didn't recognize before, and maybe I should focus more on that? So this allows me to see how did I actually do in delivering the information that I wanted to get to the learner? Did they actually get what I set out to give them? 
And this can also be used for the learner as a little bit of reflection about the talk, a little bit of space repetition in a way, and so that they can get more out of the talk than maybe they would have as a passive learner, as a passive listener. That takes us through all eight steps of my process. Step number one is becoming inspired by great speakers, learning what the greats do and how we can adopt some of those features into our own talks. Step number two is starting to create the story. What inspires us about this topic? What do we want this to be about? Step three moves on from there to really start brainstorming about the topic, thinking about what we want to explore, what we not only get inspired by, but how we want to communicate that. And again, when we do this process, we want to move out of the digital and into the analog, allow our minds to explore. Step four is to shape our message, taking all of those ideas about the topic and deciding what are the three or four critical points that I want to make sure everybody is getting? What is my elevator pitch? Now I'm going to take all of those in step five and start to create an outline, a skeleton for our presentation, a process, a flow of how this presentation is going to work. At the end of that step, I often will have a set of slides, blank slides, nothing in them except maybe in the presenter notes. And now step six, we're going to start filling those slides in, but not with bullet points, not with data, not with tables, but with pictures, with images, keeping in mind that reading from slides is not the same as teaching. We want the slides to be there to prompt us to remember what we want to talk about, but we don't want the audience to be reading our slides and listening to us at the same time. Now we have a complete presentation that has a story, it has the support of media, and now we need to rehearse. We need to hone our message. We need to work on it over and over again until we know the information like the back of our hand, until we have mastered our intro and our close, and we are comfortable with delivering that talk. And then finally, we're going to seek feedback. Feedback while we're building the talk, recording ourselves and sending it to others to listen to, and then feedback during the talk itself planting some people in the audience to give feedback on specific areas, recording that delivery and listening to it later, and then asking the audience for feedback specifically, what did you learn from this talk and making sure that it matches up with what it was that you wanted to teach. So those are my eight simple steps on creating a great presentation. And again, you're going to have to vary this. You're going to have to bend this to what you are looking for, but I think this will set us up to create better presentations. As I said before, I mentioned some resources that I think are really great and critical. Gar Reynolds' Presentation Zen, the holy bible of how to create slides, how to communicate information with supportive media, a fantastic book, easy to read. Everybody should be picking this one up. And again, I don't get any money. It's just a really good book. A couple of websites to look at as well, keynotable.net. This is a group that I work for where we do have some blog posts on how to create better slides, how to create better stories. And then the PQ presentations by my friend Ross Fisher. Both of these blogs are free. They're open access, but with great information of how we can tell better stories, how we can deliver better presentations to the audience that we're seeing. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to follow us on Google Plus and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you all next week.